So in our study last week, if you were with us, Pastor Rick walked us through the origin of sin as we spent some time looking at Genesis 2 and 3. And as we think about that first sin in the garden, what we want to look at this morning is how does that affect us? Does Adam's rebellion against God have any bearing upon the rest of his offspring, which is all of humanity? And if so, what type of effect does it have? And so our focus this morning will be to look at the historical views of the imputation of sin. So let's start by defining the word imputation, perhaps You have heard this word used before, but may not exactly be clear as to what is meant by it. And up here on the screen, when we're talking about imputation in the context of Adam's sin, a good definition would say that the sin of Adam is counted or reckoned to all his descendants as theirs. And they are dealt with, therefore, as guilty. Now, the way that we've just defined it here is, I believe, the correct biblical way of defining it, but it hasn't been defined this way by all within Christendom throughout the ages, and that is what we will seek to explore this morning. As we look at these views, we'll look primarily at what they teach about sin, and then we'll examine them in light of Scripture. And as we go through these four, they're not in any particular order Uh, historically. So there on your notes, the first view that we'll look at is what is called the Pelagian view, and it's aptly named after the British monk Pelagius, who lived in the late 300s, early 400s AD. And if you're familiar with church, church history, you may remember that one of the great controversies in the church took place between Pelagius and Augustine the Bishop of Hippo. Pelagius took great issue with a statement that Augustine made, which was really a prayer rather than a statement. And here's what Augustine said. Grant what thou commandest and command what thou dost desire. Okay? Grant what thou commandest and command what thou dost desire. What Augustine was saying here was that God can and does command whatever he wills. But his prayer in line with that was, give me the ability to obey what you command. And this is where Pelagius really took issue because Pelagius takes his starting point in the natural ability of man. His fundamental proposition was this. God has commanded man to do that which is good. Therefore, man must have the ability to do whatever God commands. Okay, let me me read that again. This is Pelagius' proposition, the way that he was thinking about this, and the reason that he took issue with what Augustine said here. He said, God has commanded man to do that which is good, therefore, man must have the ability to do whatever God commands. So, in Pelagius' view, man, after the fall of Adam, still has a free will in the absolute sense of the word. 
so that it is possible for him to decide for or against that which is good and also to do the good as well as the evil. Whether a man will do good or evil simply depends on his free and independent will. You see, it was the position of Pelagius that Adam's sin affected Adam and only Adam. The only negative impact that Adam had on his progeny or his offspring was that of setting a bad example. And if those who follow in the pathway of Adam imitate his disobedience, then they will share in his guilt, but only by being actually guilty themselves. In Pelagius's view, there can be no transfer or imputation of guilt from one man to another. Adam was the first sinner, but his sin was in no sense passed on to his descendants. So in Pelagius's view, there is no such thing as original sin. Children are born in a state of neutrality, beginning exactly where Adam began, except that they're handicapped by the evil examples which they see around them. So Pelagius went on to say that it is possible for every human being to live a life of perfect righteousness. Hopefully, as I gave you that brief history on the Pelagian view, you had all kinds of scriptures coming to the forefront of your mind to refute why this is incorrect. So let's briefly look at why this view is wrong in accordance with the word of God. In testifying about his sin with Bathsheba and his consequent decisions on what he had done with Uriah, having him killed, David not only condemned his sin with her and his sin against Uriah, but he recognized that this sin in his life reached much farther back than this act against Bathsheba and Uriah. And this is how he states it in Psalm 51, verse 5. Somebody can read that for us. Okay, good. Right, so everybody's probably familiar with Psalm 51, this great psalm of, of repentance. And David recognizes, yes, that act that I committed was very evil, but it goes back further than just this act in and of itself. And I want to look at a few other passages as well that clearly testify to this reality. Psalm 58.3, if somebody can read that for us. Okay, so estranged from the womb, they go astray from birth, speaking lies. Okay, so this, this text in and of itself was sufficient to refute Pelagius' view that children are born in a state of neutrality. They come in not good or evil, but they have to walk their own path. 1 Corinthians 2.14, somebody can read that for us. The natural person is not 
Okay, so the natural person, everybody, who everybody is naturally coming into this world, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. We don't understand them, right? We're not able to walk in accordance with the things of God. We're bent towards sin. Okay, how about Mark 7, 21 through 23? If somebody can read that for us. Here, Jesus clearly testifies, where is the issue? Is the issue with bad examples that we see around us that lead us astray? No. Certainly, environment helps in our rebellion. <clears throat> but Jesus says, from within, out of the heart of man, <clears throat> come all these things. And all these evil things come from within. Okay, So there's an issue going on in the heart of man. And then Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, I'll go ahead and read this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Okay? So you can just tell through all these different examples here why uh, the church came to the conclusion that Pelagius is dead wrong on this issue, that people are born into a state of neutrality and can choose to walk in a path of righteousness or they can follow bad examples and follow a path of wickedness. <clears throat> There's obviously more scriptures that we can address here, probably more that you can think of right now, um, but hopefully that's sufficient to help you see why this view of sin is wrong. So Pelagius failed to realize that just because God commands something that man is not able to perform in no way makes God unjust. In fact, it says more about man's sinfulness than anything and his depravity. Man is responsible for his failure to perfectly obey God, and this should cause him to run to God's remedy, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Okay. By the way, the Pelagian view was condemned by the church at the Council of Carthage in 418, and then again at the Council of Ephesus in 431, and Pelagius was excommunicated from the church in 429. So the church thought very differently about how sin affected the rest of humanity. Well, moving on then to the second view on your notes, we have semi-Pelagianism. One of the people that was present at the Council of Carthage there in 418, where Pelagianism was condemned as heresy, was a man by the name of John Cassian. And Cassian rejected Pelagius's thinking about the effect of Adam's sin, but he didn't reject it wholesale. He didn't reject it completely. In other words, he sought to find a middle ground between what Pelagius taught and what the teaching of the church was during that time. 
And so semi-Pelagianism did not deny original sin and its effects upon the human soul and will, but it taught that God and man cooperate to achieve man's salvation. And this cooperation is not by human effort, as in keeping the law, but rather in the ability of a person to make a free will choice. So the semi-Pelagian teaches that man can and must make the first move toward God by seeking God out of his own free will, and that man can cooperate with God's grace. And hopefully you can see with this view that the problem with it is that then it's no longer grace. Because grace is the completely unmerited and freely given favor of God upon the sinner. But if man is the one who seeks God first, then God is responding to the good effort of the one who is seeking him. And this would mean that God is responding to the initial effort of man. Okay, Let me kind of lay out here what this view teaches. The sinner has the ability to initiate belief in God. Okay, So what, what the Council of Carthage and the Council of Ephesus sought to make clear is that man is dead in his trespasses and sins. And that the only way he is going to respond to God is if God does something first. But semi-Pelagianism would deny Pelagius and say, no, original sin really had an effect. But we wouldn't necessarily look and say man is dead in his sin, but that man, that, that man is sick and need his, needs a physician. We would also say that God's grace is a response to man's initial effort. Okay? So God, God is willing to be gracious, but he's waiting for man to make the first move before he responds to that. So his grace is poured out as a result of man's effort rather than just freely given upon the man. Adam sinned, semi-Pelagianism would agree, and partially affected humanity. Not fully, but partially affected humanity. He did more than just set a bad example, as Pelagius was saying. Okay? His, Adam's sin really had an effect upon humanity, but not fully. Semi-Pelagianism also taught that depravity is not total. People received People receive a corrupt nature from Adam, but not guilt or culpability. Okay? Yes, Norm. One person that held this view? Yeah. Well, I, you'll probably recognize the name after I say it. Jacob Arminius. Hence so, the term Arminianism. And that was much later. That was about a thousand years after <clears throat> this, this view. And I'm going to show you how semi-Pelagianism is still alive and well today. Pelagianism does not have a foothold on evangelicalism today. But unfortunately, semi-Pelagianism is alive and well. And, and here's how it fleshes out. Okay. 
in evangelicalism today. There are many churches that would say that Adam's sin certainly is debilitating to his offspring, but not deadly. And so what these churches do is that they build themselves upon the foundation that there still resides within man the ability to turn himself, to make the first step toward God in order to be made right with him. And, you know, we can look at this and just say, you know, what's the big deal? I mean, you got these historical things. They're not really affecting people today. Why do we need to, you know, think through this? What you believe affects how you do ministry. And so what happens in these churches is that oftentimes they abandon the faithful teaching of the word of God and the faithful preaching of the gospel, and they begin to rely on their own techniques, their own strategies, their own methods. A good example of this is when Charles Finney kind of instituted what's commonly called the altar call, where people are coming forward. And people are just naming the name of Jesus, and they're saying they're in. It doesn't matter, so on and so forth. Okay? That, that's the kind of thing that comes into the church as a result of this type of thinking. And what we see here is that if we don't believe that the Word of God, or we don't believe the Word of God and what it clearly states, but we choose rather to believe the wisdom of fallen men, we will fail to see a man for what he truly is. And when we do that, we'll misdiagnose him. And therefore, we will fail in truly helping him with what he desperately needs. Man by nature, listen, is not a patient who just needs some medicine to get better. He is a corpse who needs a resurrection. And God alone can do that through the faithful preaching of his gospel. So let's take a look here at some of the texts that refute this semi-Pelagian view. Psalm 14, 23, um, Psalm 14, verses 2 and 3, if somebody can read that for us. this, you may remember, in Romans chapter 3. Read that. Okay, so remember, one of the presuppositions of the semi-Pelagian view was that man, affected by the sin of Adam and crippled by it to some degree, still has the ability to seek after God. Well, these texts make very clear that no, the natural man does not have the ability to seek after God, nor the desire, which I'll talk about in a minute. Okay. Ephesians 2.1 that I referenced earlier, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Titus 3.3. 3. Somebody wants to read that for us. Okay, good. So what, what is the 
diagnosis of Scripture upon the human condition. It's not that we're just debilitated, right? We're slaves to various passions and pleasures. We're bound up in sin. John 8.34, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Jeremiah 13.23, talking about the condition of humanity. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. So what, what is Jeremiah saying there? Can that happen? Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Can the leopard change his spots? In other words, can a person change who they are by nature? No, they can't. So then you can't do good who are accustomed to do evil. Okay, so there's no good that a man can do. Romans 8, verses 5 and 8. For those who live according to the flesh, which we all are by nature, set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For Now notice this. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Okay? It can't. It's not that it just won't, it can't. Right? It's not the ability. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Okay? So this is the condition that the scriptures lay out for us of who we are by nature. Likewise, the semi-Pelagian view was condemned by the church at the Council of Orange in 529 A.D. Okay, so Pelagian view, refuted, semi-Pelagian view, refuted. And I want to say, in closing up this point on semi-Pelagianism, that I do think that there are those within the church who hold this view, they may not understand all the terminology here, that are still saved, okay, even though it was condemned 1,500 years ago. But this is why we need to be in the Word and having our minds continuously renewed by it so that we can think as God thinks. Okay? So I'm not saying that if a person holds this view that they are lost or condemned, but I think continual, continual study in the Word of God will bring a person to the right conclusion about what God says about the human condition. Okay? All right, let's take a look now at these last two views which are extremely similar to one another. Okay? View number three there is the Augustinian view. And you heard me reference earlier the debate between Pelagius and Augustine in the early 5th century. And this would be the Augustinian view. And this view states that sin is imputed to humanity because of Adam's sin. It also states that humanity sinned in Adam. And then finally, it teaches that depravity is total, sin and guilt are 
imputed. So the whole of man, his mind, his will, his affections, his heart, the whole of man has been affected by the fall of Adam, the imputation of Adam's sin to his, his offspring. Now, as I said earlier, the Augustinian view and this last view that we'll look at, the federal view, are extremely similar. The difference between these two is that the Augustinian view would say, and I'm going to get into this in a second, I just want to kind of lay it out generally for you, is that humanity sinned in Adam. So in other words, in some way, all of humanity was present in the fall of Adam. That's what it means when it says humanity sinned in Adam. The federal view would say that Adam alone sinned, but he affected the rest of humanity through that one sin. Okay? And I'll, I'll flesh that out here a little bit more. Let me give you a just a brief overview of the Augustinian view here. As I mentioned earlier, named after Augustine, he lived 354 to 430, and it teaches that the statement all sinned in Romans 5.12 suggests that all humanity was a participant in Adam's sin. So the Augustinian view would hold from this text here. Let me pull that up, Romans 5.12, and read that for you. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. So that phrase, all sin, there has been kind of the point of discussion between the Augustinian view and the federal view. And the reasoning behind the Augustinian view goes like this. We cannot morally be held accountable for a sin committed by someone else. Therefore, to be accountable, we must have been actively involved somehow in that sin. Somehow, we must have been present at the fall. Now, I think R.C. Sproul brings out some really good points here um, in thinking about this view. Because he states, and I think this is a good point that he brings out, what this view demands, therefore, is some kind of concept of the pre-existence of the human soul. Okay? If we were really there somehow, there's some type of pre-existence going on. That is, before we were born, our souls must have already existed. They were present with Adam at the fall. They fell along with Adam. Adam's sin was not merely an act for us. It was an act with us. We were there. And the textual support, I want to look at this, for those who hold this view and those who still hold it, is really found in two places in Scripture. The first one is in Ezekiel 18, verses 1 through 4, and then also verses 19 and 20. And the second place is in Hebrews 7, verses 9 and 10. I'm going to put those up here in case you're taking notes and you want those those references. So let me go first to Ezekiel 18, verses 1 through 4, and if I can have somebody read that for us.
Verses 19 and 20. verses 1 through 4, and then also verses 19 and 20. And so the argument from this text, I think, misses the point of the fall of Adam. We have to remember that context is the key in determining a passage. Ezekiel was not giving a discourse on the fall of Adam in this passage. The fall is not in view here. Rather, Ezekiel is addressing the commonplace excuse that men use for their sins. They try to blame someone else for their own misdeeds. That human activity has gone on since the fall, but that's about all this passage has to do with the fall. As Pastor Rick talked about last week, in the fall, as we looked at in Genesis 3, you have Eve blaming the serpent and Adam blaming both God and Eve for his own sin. So ever since, men have tried to pass the buck of their own guilt. But still, those who hold this view argue that a principle is set forth in Ezekiel 18 that has bearing on the matter. Okay, So what happened in the garden and what they see here in Ezekiel 18 They kind of bring those together. And the principle is that men are not held accountable for other people's sins. And just to note, to be sure, that principle is set forth in Ezekiel. Clearly, we see that. But we want to make sure that we don't take what Ezekiel is saying in that context and lay it over the whole of Scripture to come to a theological conclusion on the fall. Because listen, if we do, I think we take that text and it proves to be too much. Because it it proves, listen, it proves away the atonement of Christ. If we follow that. If it's never possible for one person to be punished for the sins of another, then listen, we don't have a savior. Jesus was punished for our sins. And that's the very essence of the gospel. So if we take what we see here in Ezekiel 18 and we lay that over the whole framework of the scripture, then our meeting this morning is in vain. Go home. (laughs) Right? But not only was Jesus punished for our sins, but his righteousness, listen, is the basis for our justification. We're justified by an alien righteousness, a righteousness that is not our own. And if we press Ezekiel's statement here, especially here in verses 19 and 20, this last part, I have a little pointer here rather than trying to, this last part right here, 
The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Then we are left as sinners who must justify ourselves. And that puts us all in deep trouble. So I don't think we want to take that passage in Ezekiel 18 and try to overlay that on the scripture. Now to be sure the Bible speaks of God's visiting the iniquities of persons on the third and fourth generations. But listen, this refers to the fallout or the consequences of sin. Listen, a child may suffer the consequences of his father's sin, right? But God does not hold him responsible for his father's sin. And I think that the text lacks the support needed to solidify that view there in Ezekiel 18. So I think when we press that, we see that we can't take that statement in Ezekiel 18 and lay that over the fall and come to the conclusion that humanity must have been present in the sin of Adam. Okay? Now, the next text that I mentioned that is often referred to is in Hebrews Go ahead and turn there with me, because it's an extensive passage, so I didn't put it up on the, uh, <coughs> the notes here. Hebrews, and I want to begin by looking at the end of chapter 6, and then rolling into to chapter 7 here. And I'll tell you in particular the text that is that's really referred to and held on to when thinking about the Augustinian view. I'm just going to pick it up here at the end of chapter 6 um, in verse 19. This is just a beautiful passage talking about uh, God's oath and his promise and what has been accomplished for us in Christ. And then starting in verse 19, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then I'm going to read through verse 10 in chapter 7 here. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in another case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. Now, verses 9 and 10 
is really the passage that those who hold this view would see a lot of correlation between. So let me read that. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, again, it was not the chief concern of the writer of Hebrews to explain the mystery of the fall of Adam with all of this. Yet he says something along the way that those who hold this view use to prove their theory. He writes there that Levi paid tithes through Abraham. So Levi did this while he was still in the loins of his ancestor. And so those who hold this view see this reference to Levi doing something before he was even born as biblical proof for the concept of the pre-existence of the human soul. If Levi could pay tithes while he was still in the loins of his father, that must mean that Levi, in some sense, already existed. But I think that fails the correct interpretation because this text does not explicitly teach that Levi really existed or pre-existed in the loins of his ancestor. The text itself in verse 9 says, one might even say, in another translation you'll see, in a manner of speaking, okay, the text does not demand that we leap to the conclusion that Levi really pre-existed here. And so those holding this view come to this text, I believe, armed with a theory that they didn't find from the text, and then they tried to read that theory into the text, which is what we would call eisegesis. It's taking something and reading it into that text rather than letting the text speak to us. So again, I think when we look carefully at both Ezekiel 18 and Hebrews 7, we find lacking this reality that humanity was really present in the fall of Adam. Which brings us now to this fourth view, which I believe is the correct view. It's called the federal view. kind of lay out for you, you're going to see complete similarity except for one issue with the Augustinian view. Sin is imputed to humanity because of Adam's sin. Adam alone sinned, but acted as our representative. Depravity is total, sin and guilt are imputed. So really just the difference here again is this issue of was all humanity present in the fall or was Adam alone sinning and affecting the rest of the human race and federalism again I believe rightly understands what Paul is saying in Romans 5 let me give you 
Again, just a very succinct definition for the federal view. Uh, this, was, this view was originally brought forth by the Dutch theologian Johannes Coxius. He lived from 1603 to 1669, and it really became a standard within Reformed theology. And the reason that this view is called federal is because Adam is seen as the federal head or the representative. Yes? Say his name again. Uh, Johannes Coxius. C-O-C-C-E-I-U-S. 1603-1669. And it's not that others didn't hold this view before him, but he kind of put it in a way that was more packaged and easily understood. So this federal view, again, holds that Adam is seen as the federal head or the representative of the entire human race. Somebody else. Yes. I wanted to know, does, now the Augustinian as yep. far as using the Hebrews chapter 7 yes. and talking about, and talking about uh, Levi, Cain, yeah. uh, Abraham. Yeah. Now, is, there, is there a different view of imputation that um, takes as far as man being in seed form, you have the doctrine yeah. of the seed of Christ and being uh, uh, the seed of Christ because yeah. you were in Christ as a spiritual right. seed? have all these places because you were in Adam had the physical seed and right. you had all of the curses that come along with his disobedience. Definitely. No no doubt. So what, what Jonathan was asking there, good good question, was um, is it possible to look at that and say um, we were there, so to speak, in, in seed form since we're all descendants of Adam? Certainly. And, and I think that's the view that we would take. We would just say that we weren't really there. Yeah, yeah. 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 We weren't really there. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Exactly. Good, good point. So going back to this, um, this aspect of federalism or the federal view. So God enters into this covenant with Adam whereby he promises to bless Adam and thereby the entire human race with eternal life if Adam obeys. <coughs> Disobedience would bring suffering to the entire human race. And as a result of Adam's sin, he was the representative of the human race. His sin plunged the entire human race into suffering and death. And through the one sin of Adam, sin and death are then imputed to all humanity because all humanity was represented in Adam. So what I want to do is look back at Romans 5 because Romans 5 really is dealing with this issue of Adam and Christ. So Romans 5, and I think when we look at Romans 5 closely, the, why I would hold to a federal view and why many within a Reformed theology would hold to this is because I think it's a faithful interpretation of Romans chapter 5, which does deal directly with the fall of Adam, not going to other texts that you try to impose upon the fall of Adam. So Romans chapter 5, and I want to look particularly here at verses 12, 15, 18, and 19. I'm not going to expound on this greatly because this text actually is going to be a text that's going to be followed up on in the next few weeks. So Romans 5, starting at verse 12, and then verse 15, and then verses 18 and 19. So it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. 
verse 15. Many died through one man's trespass. And then verses 18 and 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Whatever ambiguity there may be in verse 12 about what Paul means when he says that death spread to all men because all sin, I believe is clearly answered in the verses that follow, especially verses 15, 18, and 19. And so acting as our federal head, our representative, when Adam sinned, that sin was imputed or counted to the rest of his offspring, which is all of us. So his fall was our fall, even though we weren't really present there at that time. His judgment was our judgment. We are condemned in him because God appointed him as our representative, our head. I think verses 15, 18, and 19 make this radically clear. I don't know how you read it any other way than what it says that picking up in verse 15, many died through one man's trespass. So this was the trespass of one man. And the effect of that one trespass is many died. Okay? And then in verse 18, one trespass, Adam's, led to condemnation for all men. So it wasn't that all men sinned and therefore all are condemned. It's one man sinned and therefore all are condemned. And then verse 19, one man's disobedience, through that one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So this is why I would hold to the federal view, because I just think it, it makes sense in the context of Romans 5, which deals directly with Adam's rebellion that we see back in Genesis chapter 3. The other reason that I hold this view is that Adam is being used as a point of contrast and comparison with Jesus Christ. This is Paul's argument in this passage. Just as this one man's sin led to condemnation for all who were in him, and through his sin the many were made sinners, so this one man's righteous act leads to justification for all who are in him, and through this righteous act he makes many righteous. If we think that we were somehow present in the fall of Adam, we would have to carry that over in this text and say, we were really present with Christ. We weren't. He did it by himself, on his own, in our place. So Adam and Christ are the representatives of all of humanity. And they are the representatives of the old humanity in Adam and the new humanity in Christ. That's why we're called new creations in 2 Corinthians 5. You're in one or the other. You have a representative. It's either Adam, which we all are represented by, by nature, or Christ, which we're represented by through the gospel. And that's Paul's point, and that's why I believe it's the faithful way to view both the imputation of sin and the imputation of righteousness. Okay? I'm done. Unless you have any questions or...
or comments? Okay. Yes. Yes. Thankfully, knowing that all descendants of Adam are born into sin, Christ couldn't be born this way or else he'd inherit that sinful nature. So that's why it was vital that he was born of a virgin, conceived of the Holy Spirit. Um, so but, but still... The mechanism was a creation of the same divine That's right, exactly, exactly, yeah. He comes into this world unique, um, and thankfully unique, um, because we all came in inheriting Adam's sin and Christ alone. That's why it was, the, I mean, the virgin birth is one of the core essentials of the Christian faith. If you try to take that out, you just, re, you just destroy the gospel by, by doing that. So, so actually it reinforces him by making the Yes. Holy Spirit, as opposed to the federal head being Adam, a man, that concept, I guess, without being able to put a physical, tangible something to it, yeah. that concept was enough to provide that separation that Christ was of God and of the That's right. That's right. Yes, I did. So, first question, do you remember the date? Because I can't find it in my notes here. Yeah, it was August of, I think last year. I think I preached through it in August of last year. Okay. So, the second question, did you talk about this imputation, like comparing the views, or is that no. sermon going to help us at all in understanding this topic? Well, yeah, specifically what I dealt with in Romans uh, 5 is I, I didn't get into the different views of imputation as I just did this morning, but I did 
strictly hit on what it means to be in Adam and what it means to be in Christ, or what it means to be in union with Adam and what it means to be in union with Christ. But yeah, I think this summarization that we just went through, if you went back and listened to that, it would help in understanding uh, Romans 5. I think August, uh, sometime early August, I don't remember exactly when, but 10th maybe, check that. Okay, Norm. I don't think, yes, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. No, 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 that's a, that's a, that's a good question. Yeah, and I, I don't think what Paul is saying there is that we were somehow really present in the crucifixion of Christ, um, but the point is certainly there that as our representative, um, as the old hymn says, in our place condemned he stood. So acting as our representative, whatever happened to him happens to us. So as he was crucified, so were we. His death was our death, just as Adam's rebellion was imputed to us. Same is true with the, with the death of Christ. So the, the death of Christ is our death. His resurrection is our resurrection in that sense because he's acting as our, as our head. Identification, that's a good way to put it. Yep. So just as Adam plunged us into sin, yep. Christ plunges us into right. our death and we are resurrected into so so it's a lot to me it's a great comfort to know that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. Well you know the concept we were talking about earlier about the whole seed concept. Yes. Christ being not only the head, but the father of a spiritual humanity. Yes. And that, that is going to end up in the resurrection of receiving spiritual bodies, and we're going to be in a new heaven and a new earth. Yes. Christ and Adam being not only the head, but the father of a physical race on a physical world and everything. It's so much what I see with this, with this is that they are actually the progenitors of the natures of these people. And these yes. natures only have certain capabilities. The nature that Christ imparts to us can only produce righteousness. That's right. It can only produce good. And the nature that Adam imparts to us is unable to obey yes. the law of God. Thus, it falls under condemnation. Amen. And that's why our nature had to be changed. That's why Christ had to come. It had to come. So it, it, it's not so much in the sense that, that they, they can be our representatives in our heads because what they do is indicative of what we're all going to do. Once I have my complete spiritual nature imparted to me in the resurrection, I will be just like Christ. Right. 
Right. Just like just like what Adam gave to me by being once I'm physically born into the world, I'm just like Adam. Right. Absolutely. Amen. All right. Let's uh let's close it up. Good questions. Thank you guys for your attentiveness. I know history can sometimes be boring, but hopefully that wasn't too bad for you. So. Father, we thank you, Lord God, that Christ is our representative. We thank you that we are in him, that we're in union with him, that we are blessed in him, Lord. And we are thankful that you treat us as if we've lived that perfect life that your son has lived on our behalf. It's an overwhelming reality. Lord, I pray that we can correctly understand the imputation of sin so that we can correctly understand and rejoice over the imputation of righteousness that Christ has given to us. So strengthen our hearts with this today, Lord. May we be people who are continuously by the Spirit, putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Thank you for your patience with us and conforming us into the image of your Son. Lord, I know we all fail on a daily basis, but we're so grateful that you don't treat us as we deserve, but you treat us on the basis of what your Son has accomplished on our behalf. All glory and honor and praise to you, Father. We long for the day where faith will be sight, where we will see him as he is, and we will walk in complete obedience for the glory of your name. Thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen.